So we are uh, in the book of 2 Peter, studying false teachers in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3 talks about the way they carried out their mission. They came from within this small church in Asia Minor. Small church came from within, and they secretly whispered out destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign king who bought them upon the cross. And part of their secret destructive heresies, they questioned the reality of judgment, they questioned the reality that Christ was going to come again. And they walked along well-chosen and well-known paths. They dealt with carnality and sexual abuse and greed. And because of their destructive heresies, their secret nature, their well-known paths, the Bible says that many in the church, many, will follow them and they will bring the truth of God to a place that it is blasphemed. And, and so Peter just takes on the false teachers and says basically that this is, this is really, 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 really destructive and people's salvation is at stake and their happiness and joy and their usefulness in the kingdom of God. And this is important. This is some of the things he says. He says, the Lord knows how to keep these people under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse nine, he says that these te false teachers are irrational creatures. Verse 12, he says, they're blots and blemishes. Verse 13, they have eyes full of adultery and they are insatiable in their sexuality. Verse 14, they are a cursed children. Verse 14, they are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. Verse 17 says, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Verse 17. And he says in verse 19, they are slaves of corruption. These are strong words because the salvation and the joy and the welfare and the hope of people are at stake. And so teaching is important. Listen to these words from the Lord as you think about these children we just dedicated. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Those are strong words. Don't, don't, don't cause little children to stumble. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee who with great clarity says in Philippians 3, says, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day of my, after I was born. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, so I was circumcised as a good Jew. But when he saw the reality of Christ, all the Old Testament sacrificial system and signs took a back seat. And so he's preaching the gospel of grace. And he comes to a place in Galatia where some people come into the church. And they said, it's fine to believe in Jesus. I guess that's okay. But unless you're truly circumcised, you cannot be part of God's community. You can't be saved. And Paul becomes incensed because they are obliterating the gospel of grace. This is what he says. These are strong words. He says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says, you know, he says, the, the, the gospel is offensive because we declare to people, you cannot save yourself. 
Only God can. So circumcision doesn't do it. Faith does. And then he says this, strong words. I wish those who unsettle you would go ahead and emasculate themselves. Go, whoa. Whoa. He says, don't start with circumcision. Just keep on going. He says, enough of this. And then Jesus in Matthew 23 pronounces seven woes on the Pharisees. I'll just read the first one. This is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you, you, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, you travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him as much twice over a child of hell as you yourselves are. And so why these strong words from Christ and Paul and Peter? Because when truth is at stake, when the gospel is being emptied of its power, when the character of God is being denied, when, when the judgment of God and the word of God is being obliterated, it's time to stand up. When the gospel of grace is being cast aside, it's time to raise your hand and say, I stand for the reality of Christ. I was reading John 4 and thinking about it the last couple of weeks, and in John 4, you know, it's a very familiar passage. There's a, uh, Christ and his men are going from point A to point B, and it takes them, the best route is to go through Samaria, but Jews oftentimes avoided Samaria because Samaria was the land of the outcast. Generations and generations ago, some Jews had intermarried with some pagans and settled in Samaria, and they continued to intermarry and intermarry and intermarry, and so they were impure, they were unclean, and so oftentimes you didn't go through Samaria, you didn't speak to Samaritans, you had nothing to do with them, but Christ is going with his men, and he stops at noon at a well, and he sends his men to get some food, and a lady comes up, a woman. It's noon. The woman is by herself, okay? In those days, you got your water in the morning, late at night, and it was a communitarian affair. You would sit and talk and laugh, and the women would be together. It was a social hour. It was a great time. This woman, who's a member of the outcast, is an outcast of the outcast. She comes at noon in the heat of the day. You never get water in the heat of the day. And she's by herself. And a Jewish man speaks to her. Men did not speak to women if they were alone. You just didn't do it. So she's startled. He says, give me a drink. And they had this ongoing dialogue, and Jesus says, if you knew who was addressing you, you'd ask him to give living water. And he says to her, he says, go, go and call your husband. And she says, well, uh, I'm not married. And he says to her, you said, well, you're not married. He said, you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. In other words, you're an immoral woman. And she tried to change the subject. I would try to change the subject. You know? She said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then they go to this thing about worship and where do you worship? And Jesus says, make no mistake about it, salvation will come out of the Jews. And he says, the Father is looking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And 
And she says, you know, I, I know this is going to happen. I know that the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things and straighten out all this mess about where you worship and how you do it and what you don't do. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Boom. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to him, why are you doing this basically? But the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this man be the Christ? Close quote. And, and the townspeople said, he told you everything you've ever done? She said, Everything? Everything? Everything. There's a wonderful exegete named Leon Morris, who's an Australian who died a few years ago, wrote one of the two or three, I think, best commentaries on John. And Leon Morris says that, that when she says he told me everything is a pardonable exaggeration. Maybe not. See, we have the Reader's Digest version of the dialogue on John 4. The Holy Spirit gave us everything we needed to understand John 4 and the dialogue between this woman and our Savior. I think they may have had a prolonged dialogue. And he said, by the way, this has happened, this has happened. And she says, you've got to be kidding me. You know this, you know that, you know this, you know that. And so she goes to the townspeople and she says, this man has told me everything that I ever did. And they come out, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. And so they came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And they stayed, he stayed with them for two days and they had revival. And I was just thinking about the gospel of grace. And I said, here's a, here's a woman who's the outcast of the outcast. She's immoral, plus other things. And Jesus dialogues with her, invites her, befriends her, and pleads with her to come to, to faith. And I, I just thought, man, the gospel really is good news of great joy for all people. So whenever the gospel's being emptied, or the cross is being ignored, then you really get strong. Just thankful for the gospel of grace. He accepts, invites, and loves Samaritan, immoral women, outcast of the outcast of the outcast of the outcast. And, and that's, quite frankly, who we are. So, so anything that circumvents or thwarts or avoids or bypasses or circumnavigates the joy and the worship and the laughter of the gospel is deadening to our souls. Behold the gospel of grace. When I got out of school, I went overseas for two years. I lived in Singapore and had a great experience. And in Singapore, there are Hindus. And they have a big festival every year. I went to it both years I was there called Tai Pusong. And, and the, the Hindu people will make a vow to God that if you do A, I'll go through this, or I'll go through this, hopefully, and you'll accomplish this in my life. And so they put rods through their jaws and fish hooks in their skin, and it's a, then they chant, they dance, they're drugged, and you talk to the people and you say, why are you doing this? And say, because we're trying to make the God I worship happy with us. And also in Singapore, there are Islamic people. And I remember being there and watching them go through what they call Ramadan. Once a year for a whole month, 
people in Islam from sun up to sundown do not eat or drink any water, any liquid, supposedly. And then when the sun goes down, it's, it's a feast. But you say, why are you going through Ramadan? And they say, well, Ramadan is a way to earn favor with Allah. And then the majority of religion in Singapore is Buddhism. And the Buddhists will say, I'm being nice to you today because I want to achieve merit so that in the next wheel of life, the next life form, I'll come back in a more privileged position. So it's all about earning favor. And I remember going through kind of a catharsis and, and watching Tai Pusam and hearing my Islamic friends and befriending this Buddhist slash Hindu guy that was just my best buddy in Singapore, Kazi Nathan. And hearing what they did and, and really thinking, is the gospel just too easy? Is the gospel just too easy? I mean, the gospel is not. You don't have to climb an 18,000-foot mountain or walk across broken glass or hot coals or have a forced fast or anything. You just believe in the reality of Jesus on the cross. You leave your water, water pot and you run to Jesus. Is the gospel just too easy or is it good news of great joy for all the people? I, I vote B. We just sang about it in... And, and here, we, we sang, uh, no, pow no, no, no power of man, no, no power of man, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's good news. I don't have to earn it. I'm there. And so, thanks be to God for the gospel of grace. Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Peggy Noonan wrote a wonderful editorial remembering Nancy Reagan. And Peggy Noonan, just is a wonderful writer and she talks about Nancy Reagan. Let me just quote part of it to you. She says, she says I want to, as she closes, she says, I want to talk about Nancy Reagan, the, the, the steely-eyed woman and then the mystic. We won't talk about the mystic, but we will talk about the steely-eyed woman. And let me read, read you what she said. She says, steely-eyed Nancy. Some years ago, we were talking about a Washington friend who was going through a crisis and some of her struggles had become public which only compounded her woes and her misery. And Nancy Reagan got a stilly look. You can't be embarrassed, she said. Everyone in Washington has something. Everybody's been embarrassed by a story in the press or humiliated by a public firing or a loss of stature. She said, quote, it is a city of the humiliated, close quote. And she told me to give our friends some advice that was also in order Get up off the mat. I read that and I thought, Washington, D.C. is a city of the humiliated. And yet when I occasionally, not often, watch a speech in Washington, the State of the Union, I don't think of humiliated people. I think of powerful, attractive, well-coffured people. But it's a facade. We are all in the land of humiliated people. The church is a place for people who need a savior. The church is a place for people who some of are outcasts of the outcast. The church is a place for people who say, behold the man who told me everything I have ever done and he still loves me. That's the gospel of grace. And so, so when that is being abrogated, turned upside down, truncated, you, you get 
you, you talk about their, their, their waterless springs and mist driven by a storm and that the, 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 the outer darkness of the, or the outer fringes of utter darkness has been reserved for them. They're irrational creatures because they're denying the glory of Jesus. So don't truncate our joy. This is a quote by a guy. I like this quote. It's a guy named John Broadus who was from Virginia, taught at Southern Seminary when it was first started and was begun in Greenville, South Carolina, by the way. He says, the minister may lawfully appeal to the desire for happiness and its negative counterpart, the dread of unhappiness. Those philosophers who insist that we ought always to do right simply and only because it is right are not philosophers, not philosophers at all, but they are either grossly ignorant of human nature or else indulging in mere fanciful speculations. And Broadus says, and I think he's right, that the appeal for usefulness, the appeal to honor the Lord, the appeal to glorify the Savior is also appeal to our joy and our happiness and our celebration. So that, let's dive into 2 Peter chapter 2 and go through it a little bit. The false teachers in their message. Again, they were from within the church. They traveled along well-traveled paths, sensuality and greed, and many would fall because of them and blaspheme the gospel of Jesus. And yet, verses 9 and 10 says, as they do a historical overview, Peter does, he says, remember that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Strong word. Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. In the early church, there was a group that was coming up called Gnosticism. We've talked about Gnostics frequently because it's part of the New Testament. And there's going to be something coming in called Manichaeism from Persia. And they both have this in common. They're dualistic. And they both said that, that, that the heavenlies are great and glorious and pure and clean and, and filled with joy, while the earthly or the physical is putrid and a mistake and horrible. And, and you should only be involved in thinking about the heavenlies, 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 and you should avoid the earthly. And, and therefore, you, you should have nothing to do with the earthly. But, but if you cannot avoid having things to do with the earthly, then go ahead and jump in with all of your might. It's what somebody called the antinomian clause. Jump in with all your might and live the way you want to. It's no big deal because the earthly is putrid and it's going to go by the by. So, so, that, that, so this group indulged in the lust of defiling passions. Dualistic. Conversely, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Bible says men and women are the crowning acts of God's creation. And we celebrate our maleness and our femaleness. The Bible says that all men and women are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. We embrace the physical. We glory in the physical. And, and to really add insult to injury, if you're a Gnostic or a follower of many, in the fullness of time, the eternal God, who is all-glorious and unchanging, became a man. Wow. 17 years ago, there was a group in San Diego called Heaven's Gate. 
And Heaven's Gate were later dubbed the UFO cult. Heaven's Gate was led by a guy named Applewhite, and they were very, very bright people in San Diego. And they were dualists. They said, we, we think sex is horrible. We think that male-femaleness is horrible. And so they shaved their heads, and they wore these long-flowing robes that, that hid any hint of sexuality. And, and then they said, you have to swear to be a celibate. And some of them went even further than that. I don't want to describe what they did, but it was pretty ghastly. You have to be celibate to be part of this group. And, and the, the, they said, we don't refer to this as a body. It's merely a broken vessel. And this vessel is to, is to, is to be ours. And one day we will be joining some type of super spaceship. And when the Haley Bop, Hale Bob comes by and we, we attach our ways to it anyway, that's what they taught. Very, very bright people. And so in March of 1999, uh, 39 people, uh, 21 women and 18 men, voluntarily en masse committed suicide. Very, very bright people. And you, you just weep. But you step back and you say, you know, if you're going to be a member of a, 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 a group that says that creation is horrible, don't live in San Diego. I've never been to San Diego but I've heard San Diego is beautiful. I mean, how do you get up every morning and look out at your window in San Diego and say, man, this is a mess. I just worship. If, if you want to be a dualist, don't live in Charleston, South Carolina. Don't go across our bridges or see our beautiful coastline. I mean, because every time I do, I worship. If you want to be a dualist, it's good to see you, Chris. If you're a dualist, move to Chicago like Chris did, you know. <laughs> just kidding. It was good to see you, man. God bless you. Good friend, good friend. Anyway, no, seriously, if you're going to be a dualist, move to the garbage dump because creation shouts the splendor of God. And this is just as an aside. So, so one application I have as I study this whole material is, is, that, is, that, is that we embrace life, we embrace the physical, we embrace the creator who gave us this and we embrace his standards. And, and so I'm just... I'm just, I, I love the reality of the triune God and I love his standards. And his, this whole area of sexuality, I'll, I'll say this before, I need to say it frequently. We have wonderful teaching that gives us a limited path. The Bible says, celebrate sex, celebrate your physical, celebrate the reality of intimacy, and it's to be in marriage between a man and a woman. It limits your options. I'm often uh, amused. I, I like to watch our singles, young people. And they'll start dating, hanging out, whatever they call it. And three or four months later, they're kind of serious. And a few months later, they say, well, we're, we're going to get married. And people say, whoa, especially parents, especially dads, just a daughter. Isn't that too fast? Isn't that too fast? And I sometimes have this conversation. I said, you know, really, if you're a believer in Jesus and you believe the marriage bed should be undefiled, you have limited options. I said, let's talk, let's talk about having a secular attitude towards sexuality. So you're a secularist. You have no real fixed standards. And so you start dating someone. And a few, sometime later, you think, well, maybe, maybe I should have physical, physical intimacy with this person because I, they're special. 
And so you jump into that, and you swim there for a while, and then you say, well, maybe, maybe it's time for us to live together. And, and so you move in to get to know each other. And you live together for six months, a year, two years, three years, four years. And then after a period of time, you say, well, maybe, maybe we should think about getting married. Well, you're 53 years old by that time. Okay? So, so, so I go, you know, all of that's from the pit of hell. All that's from the pit of hell. Um, I was eating the other day with my wife at a restaurant and had a very talkative waitress. And she, we have her occasionally. And really a great thing to do when you're eating and you're a believer and you pray over your food to say to your waiter or waitress, we're getting ready to pray. Do you have anything you want to pray about in your life right now? How can we pray for you? They go, whoa. I've never had a waiter or waitress say, forget it. And if they're seculars, they're going to say, hey, man, throw the dice. Why not? Let's go for it. So anyway, I asked her, and she started, we started talking. She says, you know, I'm getting married next September. I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I, I'm, if you want to come see me and talk about it, I kind of do this stuff, and we can, I use some good books. And She said, yeah, maybe I will. She said, you know, we've been living together three years. I think I know him. And I thought, I said, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, my wife was there, and I said, I've been married 36 years, and some days I wake up, and it's surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> You know, it's Gomer Powell, USMC, and, and it's, that's my wife looking at me. And I, that's, that's it. You're, just, you, you, you're, you're marrying someone that's ch- going to change. And, and uh, you need the grace of Christ. So anyway, so let's go to the false teachers. Our message, I'm going to combine these, compress these because our time is already gone. I'm just now getting the text. So aspects of the the false teachers, verse 10, they had no fear of God. They didn't tremble, verse 10, as they blasphemed the glorious ones, the angels. They didn't tremble as they blasphemed and talked about things they didn't know anything about. There's no fear of God. We're living progressively in a culture that no longer says, so help me God, or with God as my witness. It's now just whatever. And in many cases, when there's no acknowledgement of God and there is a denial of God, there's no fear of God, it leads to no shame. He says in this passage, he says, these are people that they love to revel in their deceptions, verse 13, while they feast with you. He says earlier, they revel in the daytime. They do what they do in the daytime. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says this by way of illustration. He says in chapter 5, he says, verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the hope of salvation, Paul just takes for granted, says, you know, with those who corrals and party hard and are involved in misbehavior, they, they, they do it at night, but Peter says here they do it in the daytime. And not only that, but they go to the Lord's Supper, which at that time was a celebration and a communal meal, and they feast with you with eyes that are full of adultery. They feast with you, and they think about how to seduce the women that are there. There's no shame. There's no fear of God. There is no shame. As they abuse the Lord's Supper. See, in Romans chapter 2, this is what Paul says about the standards of God. 
Verse 14. For when non-believers who do not have the law by nature do what that law requires, they are a law to themselves. Paul says that all men and women, because they're made in the image of God, have some inkling of knowing right from wrong. But he also says in chapter 1 that you can suppress the truth and suppress the truth and suppress the truth and you harden your heart. And as we saw last week when we discussed Lot and Sodom, I said, I said that if, if you live in Sodom day after day and week after week and year after year, your soul will die. And we just need the body of Christ. We, we, we desperately need the people of God. And so these people have an insatiable desire for carnality. Um, every woman was a potential conquest for them. In 2 Timothy, Paul's talking about the way people will behave when they walk away from the things of the Lord. Chapter 3, he says that these people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to parents and ungrateful and unholy and heartless and unappeasable and slanderous. And he says this, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak-willed women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. There'll be men who just seduce and they conquer. And these are the teachers. And he says this, he says in, in, in verse 16, for speaking loud boast of a folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They're barely escaping, and they just seduce the unstable. And then he says this. This is really strong. Verse 19, chapter 2. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They promised him freedom, but they're just slaves of carnality. Because whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Listen to Romans 6 regarding this issue. Verse 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul says, you're going to be a slave. It's either going to be to sin or to righteousness. This leads to death. This leads to life and hope. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Church, listen, we're going to be slaves of something. If someone says, well, I'm not a slave of anything, I call the shots and say, you are a slave of autonomous individualism. It's all about you. That's, that's, that's a world. Some worldview or ideology is going to drive our lives. And I vote for the worldview that is espoused by the living God who said, if you continue in my words, then you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. I want that. 
I vote to be a slave of the one who said in Matthew 11, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am humble and gentle. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your soul. You're going to be under somebody's yoke. Somebody's yoke. I want to be a slave of Jesus, a bondservant of Jesus. I want to walk in his way. And I say to you as we have this Easter celebration which celebrates the cross and the resurrection. Are you a servant, a bond slave of Jesus, the one who wants to set you free? Because whatever masters us, to that we are slaves. And then when you get into the Word, you realize that God's Word not only guides us, but it's our guardrail. It keeps us on the right path. It keeps us on the right path. I told the men Friday morning that, that I've, I've never cursed guardrails. Grew up close to Blue Ridge Mountains, and there are guardrails everywhere. About five years ago or so, we had the chance to go to North Africa, Sarah and I did, and so we left North Africa and came to Spain. Southern Spain, got in a little rental car that's about as big as a, a couch. Plugged in a GPS, didn't work. Dusk, getting dark. We had to go about two hours up into the high mountains. To our place. No GPS, cell phone service was spotty, wasn't working, go in and out. Had a map. I know 30 words in Spanish. We were going to a place called Bubion, up in the mountains. Bubion's about as big as a stage. Just, no, just a string of small, small cities. And, and so I stopped 30 times and said, excuse me, donde Bubion, por favor? Where's Bubion? And if you ever ask people especially overseas, where anything is, they never say, I don't know. They always go, down here, take a right. Down here, take a right. I mean, it's always down here, take a right. And they never say, I'm sorry, I don't know. So we're driving, we stop, we stop, we stop, we stop. It's getting late. It's dark. There are no lights. The roads are that big. And uh, finally, we're able to get some cell service. We're in the flat from a British lady who lives up there. She met us. She said, how did you find Bubion? I said, we stopped 30 times. And we said, poor favor, don't do Bubion. I said, we're here. She said, it's amazing you made it. That's amazing. I said, oh, thank you. You know, Daniel Boone's my great, great, great grandfather. So. <laughs> anyway, so we go to bed, get up the next morning, and we said, let's go get some groceries. So we get in the car and head down the mountain to the next little village, and I almost passed out. Small roads, 3,000 foot drops everywhere, no guardrails. And I thought, if I'd known that coming up this mountain, I couldn't have driven it. And I thought, where are the guardrails? Where's the Department of Safety and Transportation in southern Spain? Aren't they afraid of litigation, people suing them because their car goes off them? Where's what's going on here? I've never, ever lamented guardrails. God is good, and he's given us his guardrails. And so, you know, as, as we bring this to a close, how do, we, how do we fight the false teachers? Well, first of all, we, we embrace the lordship of Christ. Secondly, we realize that God in his mercy knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to do that. While simultaneously keeping under judgment or punishment, those who are awaiting the day of judgment. So we, we look for the way to be rescued as we study the Bible and as we talk to people. 
And we realize that we're in a conflict that demands that we look for a way to escape. But thirdly, most importantly, as I say this book of 2 Peter in the Bible, I've got to load my mind with the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty and the wonder of all that God is for me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've got to think again and again of the wonder of the cross and the glory of union with Jesus, the wonder of the Holy Spirit living in me, the, 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 the wonder of having the Word of God. So I just go to the first part of 2 Peter where Peter says that we have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostle Peter. The same faith they had, we have. He says that grace and peace are multiplied in our lives in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. who called us by his own glory and goodness. By this, he's given us his great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires, by these false teachers. Do you want to escape the, the, the dead end road of the false teachers that just sucks the life out of your body? Then glory in Jesus. Stand on the promises. And as you do that, you say, Lord, you're not, not only are you helping me to escape the corruption of the world, but you, you are changing me to participate in the divine nature of Christ. You're, you're making me to be and to reflect in my limited abilities the reality of Jesus. Wow. So church, fight on to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and... Thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people. Thank you for dedicating these little babies to the Lord. Thank you for gathering with men and women, many of whom have walked with you for decades. Thank you for uh, new believers. Thank you for people that are in process of trying to understand and grappling with the fact that there is a God who loves us and who gives us the free gift of life through Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to go through a body disfigurement because you've fulfilled some wish in our heart. We don't have to fast for a month uh, every year, year after year after year, hoping in some abstract, non-concrete, wishful way that somehow we're building merit with the God who cannot really be defined. Thank you that we're not people who believe that there are endless life cycles and I'm building merit for the next one because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to live and to die, and after that comes the judgment. So thank you for, for, for this, just the reality of, of the Bible. Thank you that we can go outside today in this beautiful spring day and say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Just amazing. All these things pale in comparison to saying thank you that you, living God, in the fullness of time became a baby and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious. Help that message not to get snowed under or to become somewhat part of the past landscape. May that be the apotheosis, the cry of joy in our heart as we think about the glory of Jesus. So, God, do that in our, our lives, which only you can do. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Thank you for this day. May your kingdom come in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.